Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Those are verses 14 to 18 of Psalm 89, the first 18 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Monday, March the 28th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are continuing our look at the prophecies of Jeremiah today in chapter 16, verses 10 to 21. We're continuing in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 to 15, and then in Paul's letter to the church at Rome in the seventh chapter, the first 12 verses. So the the Lord has laid out a case against his people, and it's primarily based in in their idolatrous worship practices. And, and that they're idolatrous in, in two different ways, essentially. One of those ways is they've gone after other gods. They've started sacrificing to the Baals, and the Baals were fertility gods. And so they're, when you sacrifice to the fertility god, that, that expresses a belief that you have that that god controls that aspect of life. And so they've appropriated that from the nations around them and begun to um, to it, worship the Baals. But the other side of the idolatrous worship practices is this, that they decided that since there was prosperity in the land, that sin was, a, was something that could just be atoned for by making sacrifices, and that would appease God. Well, God doesn't need to be appeased. Um, <laughs> sin must be atoned and propitiated for. It's not appeasing God, you know, saying, oh, hey, you'll excuse this because, well, here's the sacrifice. No, what he wants, <laughs> what he always says, is a contrite heart. He wants repentance. He wants you to, to reject those things. And so it's idolatrous because you've turned him to, to nothing more than an idol to practice your religion in that way, where you think, oh, okay, well, I can be excused for sin because, well, that's who he is. And, and so we can do the same thing in Christianity, right? Because we can, we can diminish the importance of the blood of Jesus by continuing and persevering in what we know to be sinful behavior. And so, as, so long as we do that, we think, well, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. That's enough. And so what we've done, though, is, is we've said sin is a light and, and transitory matter. It really doesn't matter that much to God, but the death of his son on the cross tells us a very different story. And so here, when he lays out the case, God says to Jeremiah, when you tell this people all these words, and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced this great evil against us? What's our iniquity? What's the sin that we've committed against the Lord our God? I mean, we can become so inured to sin, and we can have convinced ourselves that these things are actually okay, that we can actually just completely miss the point, which is exactly what's happening here. You shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods and served them and worshipped them. So initially, the answer sounds like because the people that came before you did this thing. <clears throat> but no, that's not what he's saying. And have forsaken me and have not kept my law. And because you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, every one of you follows his stubborn, evil way, refusing to listen to me. 
So you're not being obedient to me, and you're not listening. And remember what I told you is, is that one of the, the primary points of, of self-understanding of the Jews is, is that, that the Lord loved them partially because they said at Sinai, we will do whatever he tells us to do, and we'll listen. So we've committed to the future. We've committed to obedience first because we trust you. But then we've, we've also said we will continue to listen to you on everything else that you have to say to us as well. And so he says, you've, ref- you've gone your own way. You've refused to obey me, and you won't listen to me. So you're not doing either of the two things your forefathers did at Sinai. And he's saying, your fathers did this, and you have done this, so that he can show his forbearance with his people. He's being true to his name as one who forbears and is filled with mercy. Therefore, I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods day and night for I will show you no favor. And remember that when they're in Babylon, there's a couple of instances where Daniel and his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, run afoul of the king because they refuse to obey the edict to worship their gods or not to worship his own god. So we see that there, that they will indeed serve those other gods. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. So at the same time, he's announcing judgment against them. He's also telling them it's not a permanent judgment. They will come back to the land in the same way they came to the land from Egypt. And so this, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel, that's the beginning of an oath-taking. So the beginning of the oath-taking harkens back to the Exodus, and he said in the future, that same oath, as the Lord lives, will be based in the return from Babylon. Behold, I'm sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. And these hunters and fishers are those who will come, those other nations who will come and destroy the land. For my eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. This is my land. And that's the principle on which everything in the land is based, and that is the land belongs to God. It is given out of covenant relationship to human beings, but the land ultimately always belongs to him, and that's the reason that you have things like the Sabbath here where you're supposed to allow the land to lie fallow. It's a good agricultural practice, but but it's the Lord's land, and so we need to treat it that way, is what he's saying here. And so what you've done is you've filled the land with these detestable images and idols. And that whole thing has to do with what are you chasing? You're chasing prosperity, and you're chasing prosperity any way you think will work, which includes going to the Baals and making sacrifices to the Baals and imploring the Baal to then provide the fertility for the land. And that the main thing that he's going to say later in Jeremiah is, is that you're going to be there 70 years because you wouldn't let the land have its rest for the last 500 years. 
And so they've treated the land that way. The reason they fill it with idols is because they don't want to observe the practices he gave them that relate to the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year, for instance, where the land reverts to its natural owners, to its, to its long-term hereditary owners. And so he, he's saying, I'm going to doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they polluted their the land with the carcasses of their detestable idols. And so, and they've done that because they're chasing after prosperity. That's the most important thing. And so then we get Jeremiah's prayer, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. To you shall the nations come from the end of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless lies in which there's no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Therefore, Behold, I will make them know this once. I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. And I would rather know it through blessing. I would rather know it in a million other ways than having been judged in this way. But that's what he said is is that, that there's no turning back. You've gone too far, and we can, right? We can go too far into something so that we're no longer able to get back on our own, and we have to pay the price, I mean, it would be nice at some level if there was consequences for sin as soon as the sin was committed. That way we could see the one-to-one relationship. But God in his mercy forbears with us, with his Holy Spirit, prompting us to confess and repent. But then ultimately there comes a time when he says, you're, you're too far gone. So in this gospel passage today, we've dropped back. Remember, we've been in chapter 8, and now we're going to drop back to John 6, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, in chapter 5, Jesus had gone up to, to Jerusalem, and so here we are in chapter 6. He has gone back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples, which is what he had done in, you know, in the beginning when he, t- he went up on the mountain and taught his disciples. That's, that's where the setting for the Sermon on the Mount is. So now it says the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. This will be the second Passover that Jesus is going up for the festival to. But John tells us that to explain why there was a big crowd out here. These are pilgrims who were going to the festival in Jerusalem. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew what he would do. And Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough to each of them to even get a little. And one of the other disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? I mean, why did he even bring it up? If that was his attitude towards it, why did he bring it up that, that this boy has five barley loaves and two fish? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in this place. We're told that a couple of different times in feeding miracles, not just in John, but also in Mark, that there was much grass in this place so they could sit down in this place. Um, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. The important work here that Jesus has done is he's offered these up to God and given thanks for these things in the belief that they'll be sufficient. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And again, as I said before, this prophet figure they're speaking of is a prophet like Moses. 
And what he had told them before is that that, that days will come when the Lord will rise up from among you a man, a prophet like me, and you're to listen to him, is what they're told. And so, so this is the prophet, is what they mean by that, is that prophet that Moses prophesied would come. And, and so what they see is, though, is that this is sort of like manna that he's providing for them in the same way that he provided for the people through Moses when they were in the wilderness. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You've heard me maybe mention this once before. I had a, uh, when I was pastoring here in the church, had a woman who was, the, the, the women raised up and said, hey, we'd like her to lead us because we understand that she has led women's Bible studies, you know, for a long, long time and blah, blah, blah. And so she chose a set of commentaries to ask the women to read, and that's William Barclay. And William Barclay was a uh, British Anglican priest a hundred years or so ago, and a little long, or, or later than that as well. But um, anyway, Barclay wrote a series of popular commentaries that were pretty much that, that you could buy them anywhere for a while. They were they were written largely for lay people, um, and and they were not bad commentaries in in and of themselves. The problem that I have with those commentaries though is he didn't believe in the miraculous. So here, what he taught was is that he that Jesus taught him to share, that they saw his quote faith in offering these things up, and then began to share among themselves with the things they had. That the five loaves and the two fish didn't feed them. Nope, it just prompted them to share what they had. Those who did, well, the problem is is that typically teaching somebody to share doesn't prompt you to want to come and make him king. Jesus saw that was about to happen. They were going to take him by force to make him king, and he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So he was not going, his time had not yet come, for one thing. And how do you make a man king out here in the wilderness um, in this place? So in the epistle, Paul is continuing to lay out his case how the law doesn't serve or doesn't serve, doesn't save anybody because nobody is perfectly obedient to the law. And he's telling us the purpose of the law, and it's something that he does again in the letter to Galatians. He lays out the purpose of the law, and there he says that it's a pedagogue that is intended to keep us safe as we grow and mature. But when we become an adult, the pedagogue goes away. The pedagogue has done his job by teaching us to become the kind of person that our Father wants us to be. But the law, he says, it doesn't continue to have that force. Once Jesus has been accepted and once you've had the, received the Holy Spirit, then you no longer need that. So he says, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So it doesn't continue. The influence of the law doesn't continue after death. For a married woman, this is his analogy, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So the law doesn't bind her once the covenant is broken by death. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. There's a purpose for that. The purpose of setting you free 
is, is that you can bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. It doesn't mean the law is abolished as a, as a guide for human life in covenant with a holy God. Holiness didn't change. So the standard to which we're held didn't become less by the giving of the Spirit. In fact, it's increased by the giving of the Spirit because a holy God is living within you, leads you to know and understand the law in a way that someone without the Spirit can never understand it. They can only read it in a juridical fashion. They don't understand the implications of that law in the ways that Jesus laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, which is to say that, that adultery is more than just having sex with another person. No, it's lust. Murder, he says, is more than just the physical manifestation. No, it begins somewhere. And so you've got to, you know, as Barney Fife would say, you've got to nip it in the bud. And you've got to do it early on. You can't wait until it's fully blown. It's the problem that Cain had when God said, sin's crouching at your door, and its desire is to master you, but you must rule over it. Because he knew that the anger of Cain was going to ultimately show forth in the murder of Abel. So that's exactly what, what Paul's argument here is. It's not that the written code is lesser but, in, but, but, I mean, not that the written code is the be-all, end-all. He says the Spirit's going to lead us into conformity with that written code, but it's going to take it further than we were doing it in Judaism. Because in a lot of cases, they're looking to limit the application, and that's the whole question behind who's my neighbor is because the person who asked the question wants to limit the class of people known as neighbor because there's an obligation to the neighbor. So that Paul's not saying that it's simpler to, to follow Jesus. It, no, it, he says it, the law that you just got to learn the basics and then go from there. But recognizing the law has greater force. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known sin. I wouldn't have known what a violation against God's holiness looked like. He said, if I hadn't known what it was to covet, if the law had not said, don't covet. But Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. In other words, once you've described it, once you've prohibited something, then my desire for it increases. And I don't know if that's actually the fact or whether we just become aware that this was going on in there. But we're not supposed to covet, Paul says. And I didn't know what coveting was until the law told me that it was a sin and it was wrong. And then because of sin dwelling in me, I wanted it all the more. Because of sin. And what it's doing is, is it, it, he says, it, it's exposing sin, I guess is the better way to say it. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that produced that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. And so he's talking about this total depravity kind of an idea, that, that once we've been told what's not good, that part of our nature wants it so desperately that, that we become fixated on that thing, just like they did with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
We could have eaten of the tree of life at any time. But we chose the one thing that was prohibited to us. And Paul says that basic principle is what's true. If I'm telling you don't do this, it increases the likelihood you will do it. He says, so the law is holy. In other words, it tells us what holiness looks like. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So all those things, he says, are good things. So what's the problem? The problem is clear. The problem is human nature. And that's the thing that we have to deal with through the giving of the Spirit, but then we have to cooperate (laughs) with the Spirit. We have to approve what is good and reject what is not.